This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Philosophy a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Denver. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Sleese, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Hill Malatino, Assistant Professor in the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, and a Research Associate in the Rock Ethics Institute. His new book, Side Affects, On Being Trans and Feeling Bad, is just out from the University of Minnesota Press. Fatigue, disorientation, numbness, envy, rage, burnout. What good could come from thinking about trans experience and these bad feelings? In Side Affects, Hill Malatino theorizes the centrality of bad feelings in a world of quotidian and spectacular anti-trans misrecognition, hostility, and violence. He does so not only to understand how bad feelings arise and how they can be hard to survive, but also what they can make possible when they are taken up through political practices of care. Centered on trans experience as it is represented through many cultural productions, Malatino highlights the pressure on trans folks to be made happy by transition. He takes the analysis further by arguing for the power of communal care to enable survival not despite, but through these feelings. Hill Malatino, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for having me. Um, well, let's dive in. Tell us a bit about yourself and your background as a philosopher and how you came to write this book. So I am currently teaching in women's gender and sexuality studies, and I'm affiliate faculty in philosophy. So I'm not sure if I'm officially a philosopher, um, although I do have a PhD in philosophy. But that PhD was in a relatively non-traditional program that actually no longer exists. So I'm a graduate of the Philosophy, Interpretation, and Culture program at Binghamton University, and I did my dissertation under the advisorship of decolonial feminist theorist Marie Lugones. Um, And the PIC program, which unfortunately shares an acronym with the Prison Industrial Complex, which was a kind of grim joke we all made during graduate school, Um, (laughs) right? It was like, that was a critical oversight when the program was founded. And the program was actually founded in the mid-1980s, the sort of like height of the importation of post-structuralist thought into the U.S. academy. And as probably many listeners know, um, that wasn't necessarily greeted um, well by philosophy departments in the U.S. So the program that I'm a graduate of developed um, in a kind of tension with the more traditional canonical philosophy department at Binghamton in the 1980s um, and lasted until the 20-teens. I graduated hmm, 2010, I believe I finished my PhD. And I think the program was shut down about three years later um, to sort of mainstream the philosophy programming at the university. Um, and we were told at the time to invest more money in the more traditional philosophy department in order to develop like a three to combined bachelor's and MA 
that would give people training to be competitive for a law school that at the time I think folks were hoping would um, begin at Binghamton University, which is the State University of New York. Um, that hasn't yet materialized, but my PhD program is gone. Um, and I mentioned all of that at length, not to be gossipy, but to say that it was a kind of unique philosophy program and had strengths not just in what we might call continental, um, even though, of course, that's problematic as if Europe is the only continent, um, but continental or post-structuralist philosophy, as well as queer theory, um, decolonial thought, feminist philosophy, those sorts of things. So that's where my training is. Um, and then when I finished my PhD, I had a job teaching in a philosophy department at an HBCU for a short period of time and actually left to to start working in women's gender and sexuality studies departments and programs because um, I found them a little bit looser and I was able to do more of the teaching and research that I really wanted to do in those kinds of positions. Um, but my work, I think, for a long time has been about the nexus of gender, sexuality, and embodiment with a specific focus on trans and intersex experiences um, or phenomenologies. And that all began, I think, in a really personal way for me um, that had to do with grappling with an intersex diagnosis when I was a teenager, which forced me to ask all sorts of questions about what gender and biological sex were, which meant that I was really into like the history of medicine and feminist philosophy as a teenager. Um, and that kind of like track Amazing. Yeah. and led me into the the kinds of work that I do now. Yeah. So this, um, there's the passion of the teenager in it. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, yeah, that feels sure. like it makes sense given the book. Yeah. Like, which is, yeah. is, you know, really tight philosophy and also, yeah. Okay. That's, there's an energy to the book. Um, so let's that I I think that I think of very um, with a lot of happiness as a teenage energy. Like I I mean that in a really um, complimentary way. Uh, I know teenagers are always reviled, right? But like it's always what's most insulted that's most powerful. So um, your introduction makes a lot of space for thinking about trans lives, and one of the things you do is by going through dominant narratives of transition and looking at the way those dominant narratives can actually. Um, limit options for how people experience, understand their own experiences. Um, and you say you have this great way of putting it in the introduction. You describe the book as grounded in the infrapolitical practices, intimacies, and empathies that circulate between and among trans folks. Um, and so I, would you help us think about why that grounding leads you to theorize negative affects or how that grounding lets you theorize negative affects? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's been really important over the, the arc of my career so far to try to write theory in a really grounded way. Um, and that's in part because of my training in like feminist and decolonial thought, but also just because I think it's important for the purposes of accountability to write from the terrain of your actual life and be critically reflexive about that terrain. And, you know, my actual life is very, very full of, of trans people. <laughs> um, it has been for a very long time. And there was something extremely dissonant um, over the sort of long arc of this thing that we sometimes call the transgender tipping point to see more and more mainstream or sort of mainstream representations of trans lives that just didn't really seem to fully resonate with um, the lives of myself and my friends and the folks that I'm intimate with. So the germ of at least some of the book and this commitment to writing from a space of like trans collectivity or trans infrapolitics um, has to do with like really trying to think critically about what that dissonance is about and also to think against um, a kind of nascent, form of, of trans assimilation um, that I've sort of seen happening over the course of the last decade. So yeah, that's the beginning of an answer. But the other part of it too was, I think writing from a space that is attentive to infrapolitical concerns and you know what really happens on the ground between and amongst trans folks is that it allows you to move away from having to constantly grapple with questions of 
representation and recognition um, and opens up some other space to think about the sort of complicated affective or emotional terrain of trans lives. And I was really keen to do that. And that's in part why I I turned to affect theory and affect studies years ago, because it allowed me to sort of get away from conversations that were just heavily focused on questions of representation and recognition. I was kind of sick of them, in other words. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And this, so there's, we deal with, you deal with a lot of affects in the book. And the first one that comes up is fatigue. And you look at concepts like lag, interregnum, presence, um, your critique of presence. I was like, oh, right. Okay. I need to take that in. Like, I, I think I spend a lot of time thinking that presence is, is to the good. Um, and you give some complexity to that. Um, and overall, you link fatigue to temporality. It's not surprising that presence is going to get a critique. The chapters moored in questions of survival, love, and care. Um, and really this question of how to not wait to live. And it's tied to, I think, what you're talking about, these these narratives that are becoming more dominant, um, that there's sort of, you have to wait for surgery or you have to wait for some moment where you can start living. Um, and this brings you to um, T for T. And you explore the, the idea of T for T um, through giving the genealogy with Craigslist and then through transfiction. So will you tell us about um, why that becomes the concept by which you start to navigate fatigue? Yeah, that's a great, there's a lot in that question. There's so so much, I don't like, do the whole chapter for us right now. (laughs) It's just so powerful because you, like, interregnum, you you make it both political and individual experience. Like, you do a lot of work um, to make sure that everything that is experienced as individuals is also connected to these larger structures, including this deep read of Craigslist. <laughs> which, <laughs> you know, which I was like, oh, okay, yeah. I had I did an interview with uh, my friend Tuck Woodstock, who does the podcast Gender Reveal, and Tuck actually teased me about, and I don't remember if it was during the interview or if it was um, like behind the scenes, as it were, but Tuck was definitely like, out of all of the things you sort of don't explain in your writing or you just sort of mention casually and don't unpack, you give us this this intense breakdown of the history of Craigslist personals. <laughs> like, why was that the thing you decided you needed <laughs> yeah. to explain at length? And actually, it, I mean, that's, I would love to say that that was part of it, but actually, no, it was just in the initial version of that chapter, um, which came out is an essay some years ago and um oh gosh let me get it right where was that essay initially published Ooh, i don't know a journal um <laughs> this is what happens when you've been around a minute i know <laughs> I, 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 I would have to probably look back at my cv to actually remember where it was published but anyway when it was originally published um the editors asked me for the purpose of longevity, right? In case readers in the future are like, what is Craigslist? What is Craigslist personals? Oh, wow. Um, to actually give an account of of what Craigslist was and what Craigslist personals were. So so anyway, that's I'm not answering the question, <laughs> but I have this long detour about Craigslist personals in part because the editors asked me to include it. And then I thought, well, if I include it in the initial version of the essay, I should include it in the book. But there was something really interesting about the space of Craigslist personals. Um, insofar as they had developed T as a category that stood for trans that was distinct from M or W. So it was this attempt to sort of sequester trans folks, not enable them to be included in the categories of M and W, although of course trans people could could do that if they chose to, right? If they wanted to be stealth about it or, you know, we're just like, I do not want to be sequestered in the T category. Um, it also enabled certain chasing behaviors, I think, on the part of folks who wanted to sort of fetishistically have sex with trans folks. Um, but it also produced this, this space in the personals that was um, not like M for T or W for T, but T for T. Um, and then that became a sort of clever shorthand to talk about spaces of contingent trans separatism um, just amongst trans communities. So one of the first places that I remember really 
encountering this um, is a kind of like collective in-joke is in the work of Tori Peters, um, who's now probably most well-known for the novel Detransition Baby, but self-published um, novellas before Detransition Baby came out. And one of those novellas was called How to Infect Your Friends, in, or was called, not How to, sorry, it was called Infect Your Friends and Loved Ones. And on the cover of that novella, um, T for T appears. And it also appears within the novella um, is a tattoo and is a sort of shorthand for talking about really imperfect and non-utopic forms of trans uh, collectivity. And then, you know, it tracks in other spaces and it's used sort of really widely amongst trans communities now is is a way of naming contingent forms of trans separatism and just sort of, you know, I don't want to say safe spaces, but spaces for trans folks to sort of be with one another in the forms of ease, but also the kinds of tension and infrapolitical hostility that circulate in those spaces. Um, and at the time that I was writing the chapter, I just thought the most vivid depictions of the complexity of T4T spaces were were being sort of written out um, in in the spaces of fiction by trans writers. So that's in part why that chapter is sort of so heavy on literature, specifically Tori Peters' work and Kai Cheng Tom's work. Yeah, and you you use their work to think through to think through temporality. Um, it's you use speculative fiction in a way um, to think through surviving fatigue, or it's surviving is the wrong word. Like making lives in the interregnum. Yeah, yeah, and that that using the word interregnum was sort of fraught for me. Um, in part because we tend to associate it with like the period in between systems of rule. So it's a term that like, I think is for most people related to questions of statecraft, right? Like the period between regimes when things are sort of loosey goosey and wild and there's a certain kind of potential. Um, you don't know what's going to happen there before the new system or structure of power is imposed. And I was inspired by that state, right? And that by that way of thinking what happens sort of when structural power is a little bit more indeterminate or up for grabs. Um, and thought, oh, this like might be a way into thinking the, the sort of complexity of trans potentiality or the complexity of trans becoming um, in a way to move away from thinking of transition is like the movement between sort of two poles, right? From one gender to another um, that has a telos, a certain endpoint and a specific temporality to it where you can, and people do talk often about, you know, being pre-transition, mid-transition and post-transition. And I understand absolutely the necessity of sort of temporarily marking transition in those ways. But I also thought, you know, I don't know when anybody is really, post-transition and when pre-transition starts or stops, <laughs> you know, like I was like, this is all very fuzzy, temporarily speaking. Um, and I've, you know, I've been committed to a sort of, I don't know, like an engagement with questions of process ontology for a long time, mostly routed through the work of Deleuze and then some other philosophers of technicity um, that I don't write about in the book, but that, sort of longstanding engagement with, with questions of process ontology meant that I, you know, I understand gender is always a kind of becoming, right? And is not teleologically determined by a particular endpoint. And I think you see that in the chapter in the way that I talk about temporality and the way that I frame sort of trans experience as happening in interregnum. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was where I began to wonder, or just wondered how your book got titled, because it was on being trans, and the um, the process ontology is is forward enough in the book that becoming, it's on becoming trans, right? And like, um, there was a tension, I thought, between the way that you're thinking becoming and the title being on being trans. 
Yeah, um, yeah. And, and it, but I yeah. also think for me, being is always becoming anyway, right? Like when I say being, I mean fair. becoming. Fair, no, fair, totally. Yeah, um, yeah. I just there, you, you're light on the delays, but it's there, right? Like it's a, it's yeah. a. There's a, you know, there's like you can feel the becoming, yeah, and the importance of that for sure. Yeah. Um, again, yeah. men is a compliment. I'm like, you're like a teenager, and there's delays, and like, and all of these are meant to be saying like the work's really alive and vibrant, and there's a lot there. Um, so okay, well, to to turn to the opposite of alive and vibrant, numbness, withdrawal, disorientation. Um, like you tie, they're dangerous and maligned states or feelings. Um, and in many of the points in the book, you are, are in this chapter, you really do help us think about how they might be imperative, like withdrawing and, and like sort of being in disorientation might be imperative, um, even if dangerous, even if risky. And, and, and maybe makes survival possible, even though it also threatens survival. Um, so yeah, will you talk to us about how does numbness in particular, I was interested in, cause I felt like the, was it a Tori Peters, um, story? A Casey, Pl- it was a Casey Plett story. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, just like the, the sort of numbness making survival possible, even, even while the character may freeze to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Casey Plett story that appears in that chapter is a story where the main character who is trans does sex work from time to time is and is based in Canada, right? Is going out on a call and gets to the house, realizes that the person that they're meeting is likely an egg, right? So like a trans woman who's sort of realizing that they might be a trans woman um, and has yet to come out. And this calls up all sorts of sorts of um, issues and past traumas for for the central character of the story. So she promptly gets wasted, um, finishes the the call, leaves, loses, you know, sort of finds herself disoriented in this sort of exurb that she finds herself in. Um, and then walks yeah, home, sort of not dressed the for the house. weather. Yeah, yeah like can't, can't recognize the, the house, can't find her way same. back. Yeah. 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 And can't um like i think her phone is dead so she can't call for a cab and she just finds herself walking along this sort of semi-rural road in the middle of winter in canada um hoping somebody picks her up and of course because people are you know clocking her as trans it's harder to get a ride so she really does risk like freezing to death in the cold um and that story, I'm not doing the best job of summarizing that story, but that story was really poignant to me for the because of the layers of numbness and disorientation that are at work there and the way that that character is rendered with such sort of radical empathy, right? It's totally understandable when you're reading the story how she comes to find herself in the position that she finds herself in. Um, and it raises questions about why, why is it that it feels very necessary, um, at least for some trans folks, to numb themselves, to get through certain social situations, to get through certain occupational situations, to get through the day sometimes. Um, And that's something that I think I've been sort of preoccupied with for a really long time. And personally, it has to do with my own history of substance abuse and addiction, and also that of many of of the people I love. Um, And the way that that has been tied to questions of gender, I think for a lot of us, um, and writing that chapter was a way of me sort of thinking through that nexus of self-harm, substance abuse, um, but then also trying to be really gentle about it and think like there are really, really good reasons why I've selectively numbed myself and why so many people I love have done it as well. And I want to dignify that um, and not malign that, but I also want to raise questions about about that as a long-term strategy for trans survival, right? Because it's a form of survival that also um, harms us too. Yeah, it's, you're incredible, I think incredibly gentle in the chapter in the face of a lot of brutal violence. And what becomes clear or what's so effective, I think, is the way that you're showing the systematic violence um, that people are up against, and let's let's show care for 
the necessity sometimes of 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 numbness or withdrawal or or just like what disorientation how it can come upon you suddenly um right and like not and and showing care for people's survival tactics in a world of just like um quotidian and then spectacular violence right that that nobody will stop to pick the character up um in sub you know sub freezing temperatures um and then, so it's it's a. I just have to say, it's like a, a, a really I find beautiful treatment of of those negative affects in a way that's they're very hard, right? Especially for anybody who's loved or been somebody who's who knows about substance abuse, right? Um, who's had that experience. Um, so then you go on to envy, um, which, <laughs> which and, is you, fun. Oh right. my gosh, it's so good. It's so good. It's like a sin, and like it's always people are treated as like not cool enough or like bad because they have envy and you're like nope it's political um yeah. and it points us towards injustice and you talk about trans envy is powerful um so t- get us there like what what's what's the power in envy yeah yeah i mean i think so conventionally right envy is one of the one of the cardinal sins one of the big ones and <laughs> the big one <laughs> one of the big ones and it's something that we're supposed to really be rigorous about sort of checking ourselves in relationship to right like if you feel envy what you are supposed to do regardless really of your faith tradition i think just culturally is be like it is bad to envy i shouldn't want what other people have i just have to work for it myself it's this way that like a secularized protestant ethic has been so deeply internalized by i think so many of us um at least in the in the US. And there's something about envy that like I think that's a totally almost a useless framework for thinking about envy and what's really happening when we when we experience envy. Um and I actually turn and this is something that happens rarely for me, I turn to psychoanalytic literature to think through the operations of envy on a register that is a bit different from the sort of like you know secularized form of protestantism or something i'm shorthanding this i could probably say a lot more about that but um i thought no you know like what if what if it was what if we said a envy was like okay a pretty universal experience um and a pretty universal experience when it comes to questions of embodiment right like i don't know anybody cis or trans or somebody who disidentifies with both of those categories um who hasn't experienced something like envy in relationship to embodiment, right? Who hasn't looked at somebody else and been like, I wish I was more like that instead of this thing that I am, right? And, you know, I'm like all about radical self-acceptance, but I also think it's important to be honest about the universality of that experience. And also maybe to think through like the trans specificities of that. one of the hallmarks of sort of mainstream framings of trans folks is hysterical, and really specifically, I think trans women and trans femmes is hysterical, um, circulates around the question of envy and says that, you know, there is this sort of sinfulness or sickness that informs the desire to transition um, because it's effectively about envying or wanting what, what someone else this woman have. Um, and it's been a way to really sort of frame the desire to transition for trans women as is deeply pejorative and as a, as a kind of pathology or a kind of mental illness. So some of my sort of rethinking of envy is about rejecting that narrative. Um, and then in that rejection, making the move to universalize the experience of gender envy across the bounds of cisness and transness. Um, and, you know, then I make the argument that sometimes this experience of envy, this like wanting what somebody else has is actually wanting a very different relationship to power in the social and political milieu that you find yourself in. And that argument is in part inspired by some feminist theoretical takes on penis envy, um, specifically the work of Mari Vruti, which I find really helpful and interesting. Um, on the question of penis envy specifically, where, you know, she says it would be kind of strange for for women, right? And she's talking pretty specifically about cis women, um, 
But in reading it, I was thinking a lot about trans men. <laughs> so I, I guess that's important to note. Um, it would be kind of um, absurd for, for cis women to not have or to not experience some kind of penis envy, given that, you know, the sort of Lacanian understanding of penis envy has everything to do with an orientation to, to power and authority and respect. So when you're in a structurally disadvantaged or maligned position, it makes a lot of sense that you'd be like, I wish people listened to me more, <laughs> right? Like I wish people respected what I had to say, dignified my existence in the world and the fact that like, you know, um, I have a perspective or something to contribute. Um, so so that, that take up of penis envy and that sort of re-envisioning of penis envy um, really destigmatized it for me and also sort of by extension destigmatized envy. Um, and then I went and looked at, you know, a bunch of transliterary production and I thought, God, there's envy all over these texts. And whenever I encounter it, I think this is so beautiful and sweet and sometimes really adorable. Like I write about the journals of Lou Sullivan in that chapter and he's a total fanboy about like the Beatles as well as all these local musicians. Um, in like the Midwest. Is he really into Midwest Ralph City Macchio? That is that? No, no, no. That's actually Carter Sickles. <laughs> okay. Slightly later. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I really felt the time period. I was like, yes. <laughs> I was really, really, really into Ralph Macchio when I was <laughs> yeah, Totally. Totally. Which I write about. Um, no, there's a there's an essay by Carter Sickles where he talks about being really, a, you know, who's a trans a trans man writer. Um, talks about being really into Ralph Macchio when he was young um, and talks about it as a form of, of envy, which is also a form of identification, which informs his relationship to trans masculinity. And yeah. I thought like, oh yeah, no, I see myself in that picture for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this, this, and then you use, I mean, because it is—it's these like wonderful accounts that um, you draw out, and then you you link it to power, right? And the ability to um, think about relationality through envy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so much when when thinking about the relationship between envy and desire, or maybe envy as a form of desire. Um, I think that we can learn about the blurriness of relationality, right? And like the the complexities of wanting to be and wanting to have and the way that that circulates in people's intimate lives. And yeah, so I write a lot about that in the chapter and I kind of position transition is is necessarily informed by envy, right? By a kind of desire to be something otherwise. Um and then, of course, in that process, you assemble like a, a pantheon is probably putting it too strongly. But I definitely, right, personally had like guys that I wanted to be like, <laughs> right? It's like my little mental list of like, oh, I wonder if I'll be like this guy when I transition or this kind of guy or this kind of guy. Um, I definitely don't want to be like this kind of guy, you know? And I think that that is a sort of, I don't know, a set of guiding desires throughout the transition process is something that's pretty widely shared, um, maybe not talked about as often as it could be, um, or maybe talked about infrapolitically and not necessarily mm. talked about, you know, in a sort of more more public-facing way. But I think it's real important to dignify that and to destigmatize that and to say that mm-hmm. there's, there's nothing wrong with that form of envy, right? People experience that, and it's not necessarily pernicious. There are certainly pernicious forms of envy that involve taking from other people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the kind of gender envy that I'm talking about in that chapter is is definitely a much more benign version of envy. Well, and it also, I read it as about potentiality, right? And where, mm-hmm. like what, what kind of world we live in that can let people um, live into potentials, right? And the way potentials get shut down, as you were saying earlier about the concept of penis envy, like who gets seen as having a perspective and who gets, um, who who can navigate a world through their own through like realizing their potentialities in ways that are meaningful and significant for them and within their communities and the kind of um, like injustice and hostility that meets um, so much so much gender work and exploration and desire um, that it just gets 
that there's just that hostility you track throughout the book and the violence and the um, kind of limitation of potentiality. So it also felt like part of why you were talking about envy was was to dignify it and also to say like we should live in a world that um, that has more openness to the potentialities it it indicates. Yeah, 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 for sure. And live in a world where when folks manifest that they're not treated with hostility and aggression for manifesting it, right? I suspect that there's something going on where it's like, it really, folks who are trans antagonistic, part of what motivates that trans antagonism is the fact that the manifestation of potentiality they see in trans folks makes them really uncomfortable um, not because of their commitments to a kind of, you know, traditional or conservative understanding of the relationship of sex and gender, but in part because it calls up all of those those desires that they've sort of forcibly quelched within themselves. Yeah, the sort of rules for normative surviving norms, right, that people may capitulate to. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Yep. And then just being like, wait, that's that's a rule that you don't have to follow? Yeah, it's <laughs> not necessary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> apoplectic, right? Like, oh, God. And, no, and <laughs> heaven forbid it's a child, right? Who's like, no, I see potentialities in the world and I want to explore them. And that makes me feel alive and comfortable. <laughs> it's yeah. just like nothing threatens adults more, apparently. It's just amazing. Um, you know, it's like, wow, that seven-year-old really is speaking openly and with vulnerability about their experience of their own embodiment. We got to shut that down, you know? It's yeah, like, that's, really? that's rule number one. You cannot do that. No, no. My experience was bad, so yours has to be bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't, just built the repression of this. So, like, yeah. we have to yeah. squelch it right now. Yeah, because who knows what joy and pleasures we could find if we let that happen right? Like, okay so um yeah i enjoyed that chapter a lot um i really enjoyed writing that chapter too oh uh, that's good to hear yeah there's i yeah um okay and then you go on to rage so the the book has a certain rhythm to it um and and you go to rage and you track you track the way that rage can really be put can push us towards new worlds and can also um be destructive and um, they're in, I, I really saw an emphasis on how people's rage gets taken up, how it gets amplified, how it gets um, reflected back, and then also how people help pick up the pieces in the aftermath of experiences of rage. Um, it's called tough breaks. Um, and so how does rage, how do you use rage or how do you use the analysis of rage to think through care and infra? political ethics of care, and what do those practices look like? I think I was moved to write about rage in part because in a moment of increasing trans visibility, there were instances of trans rage that were becoming sort of memefied um, mm. and circulating amongst social media in ways that I, th- I think are good, right? I'm not, I'm not mentioning this to be critical about it, but... It got me thinking, right, when we look at these these instances of trans rage, one of the sort of more well-known examples would be Sylvia Rivera's speech at the 1973 Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade, which I write about a little bit, um, not actually in the book, but in a different piece on rage called The Promise of Repair that came out a couple of years ago. And uh, Signs, I do remember that the journal this time. <laughs> <laughs> but... So, you know, that's that's this instance where Sylvia Rivera comes on stage and calls out the organizers for essentially being, you know, transphobic, transmisogynistic, um, for not sort of dignifying and respecting the struggles of street queens. And that's one of these instances of trans rage that sort of became memefied and widely shared. And it's really, really extremely powerful. Um, and it's part of sort of how we came to understand Sylvia Rivera as an icon, right? Like her willingness to to manifest this rage publicly and to engage in these acts of truth-telling that were very much motivated by rage. Um, But, you know, there's like a lot of Rivera's story that, that we don't see in that clip. And a lot of that story has to do with the sort of the failure of collectives and communities to to sort of hold that rage um, 
or help her recover, right, from and live with that recurrent experience of rage. And it's not just her, right? I'm using this as one of many possible examples. But I think that I became really preoccupied with thinking through like what makes it possible for certain instances of trans rage to become amplified, to become sort of visible political examples of resistance, um, but also the work that has to be done to help trans collectivities survive the recurrent experience of rage. So thinking about rage immediately opened onto questions of collective care for me. Um, and in questions of like repair and recovery, right? Because anybody who's ever been really, really, really upset, right? And rage is like a form of anger that is that is incredibly intense and characterized almost by the way it sort of takes over your consciousness, right? Like it's an unmanaged form of anger. Um, the aftermath of experiencing something like that at the physiognomic level is really intense, right? I mean, if you've ever been that angry about something, you know how in the aftermath you can be completely depleted. And if that keeps happening, that has really, if that experience of rage keeps happening, that has really deleterious impacts, right, on one's sort of health and well-being over the long term. So I began thinking about how experiences of trans rage were and are survivable because of the sort of collective care work that other folks are doing to help people who experience recurrent rage um, recover from that rage. And then I also was thinking about how, in many instances, the manifestation of these forms of trans rage um, isn't met with that kind of collective care. and results in incarceration and punishment and violence. So yeah, that's some of what I talk about in that chapter, what I write about in that chapter. And overall, I think I was just very concerned with the facticity of trans rage, right? The fact that we live in a very, very trans antagonistic world. So of course, many trans people experience rage on a very regular basis. Um, But the experience of rage becomes sort of cumulatively um, quite toxic, right? Like quite hard to survive. Um, and that has impacts both for the sort of potential of trans political movements and organizing, um, but also, you know, at the level of the the singular being, right? It has real, takes a real significant toll. And I just, yeah, I tried to write about that. Yeah, I mean, it just, much like the Envy chapter, you really resist um, a like personal responsibility narrative right? Like you link again, this repeated experience of rage to trans antagonism um, and the necessity of community to um, offer care in the face of, of something that's not changing tomorrow, right? And is also not a personal failing on the part of, peer, of people experiencing it. Um, and so then, and then you turn to burnout. Um, and um, it's a really, I'm really glad we're doing a January interview um, because I feel like this is a time in the life of academics where we're all supposed to be well rested to go back to the new semester, um, right? And it's like, it's where you realize no rest is possible, right? And like the burnout is real, but it's a, but you, um, you, t- you give us a genealogy of burnout, um, which I found really helpful because it's not just something you can life hack. Like if you go back no. to where this came from, right? But like all of us are getting emails from our institutions right now, like, you know, like new you, new year, like, oh, you know, God, and it's yeah. like, oh God, it's I don't so think I can awful. unpack this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, a, you, and so you give us this genealogy as a way of re-politicizing, I think, burnout. Um, so can we, can we talk about that? Like this more radical meaning of burnout and then why gender work in particular is so conducive to burnout. And you give these great, histories that are so illuminating. Yeah. So I like became obsessed with the the history of burnout as a concept over the course of writing both this book and then the small book that preceded side affects, which is called trans care. Um, there's a section of the chapter on burnout that appears in a different form in trans care under the heading beyond burnout, where I talk about Rupert Raj, um, who's a trans activist who wrote in the the early 80s in some newsletters that he was self-publishing 
um, about experiences of trans burnout that were, you know, undergone by trans social worker, experienced by trans social workers, trans activists, trans organizers. And as I was reading through his takes on burnout, I thought it seems like he's describing something different than the kind of burnout that we see referenced and, you know, these emails we're getting from the universities we work for right now, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> the kind of burnout he's describing is not just, it's not just about overwork, right? It's about overwork in a context of structural disenfranchisement and dispossession. And it's about overwork in that context while attempting or while not, not attempting, while engaging in forms of poorly remunerated or entirely unremunerated labor to support folks that are similarly structurally disenfranchised. So I was like, that burnout is not the same burnout as the one that's being indexed in the wellness email I'm getting from my university. Or is right. it, right? Like, right. is corporate burnout the same thing as the kind of burnout that Rupert Raj is describing? So I started reading a bunch about the history of burnout after I wrote that section initially. Um, and that genealogy of burnout that's inside affects is the sort of result of that research. So what I discovered, um, thanks to the work of, of many other folks who, you know, are medical historians and historians of science who are, who've done the sort of legwork of finding out about the genealogy of burnout. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the work of Matthew Hofarth, which I cite, which is really excellent. Um, the term comes from this guy, Herbert Freudenberger, and he is the sort of like main architect of the free clinic movement in the United States and opened the first two free clinics in the US, one in the East Village in New York City and one in San Francisco at the sort of height of, you know, hippie, the hippie counterculture. And those clinics were meant to provide like medical care, right, for communities that would be stigmatized in a sort of traditional medical setting and to provide forms of care like STI treatment and testing um, that folks might be a little bit embarrassed to or maybe unlikely to receive in traditional medical settings. So, and then also to help people come down from bad trips because what would happen if you went to the hospital, if you were having a bad psychedelic experience is they would... Um, strap you in and medicate you <laughs> so, yeah. and tranquilize you basically. So that wasn't super helpful. It turns out. Um, it turns out. Yeah. Shockingly. It turns out. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> Who could have so, seen that? Yeah. Yeah, right. So free clinics, um, you know, and sort of Freudenberger's vision um, that he operationalized were spaces where folks could come for, for free or very low cost medical care um, where they didn't encounter the forms of stigmatization they would encounter in traditional medical spaces and where that care, the folks who engaged in those acts of caring were positioned in ways that were structurally similar, right? So they were members of that counterculture and the free clinic movement took off um, in you know, heavily non-white urban enclaves, but also in the context of LGBT health clinics throughout the 70s and 80s, and in women's clinics too. Um, and the term burnout was sort of coined by Freudenberger in relationship to other forms of burnout, right? So the burnout associated with periods of extensive and sometimes heavy drug use, right, that make people burnouts, <laughs> right? Um, that was like a colloquialism at this point in the late 60s um, that he was pulling on. And then also the phenomenon of describing um, the kind of the urban environment that was left in the wake of white flight from urban centers in that period as well, right? It sort of burned out urban districts um, populated by, by mostly folks of color, mostly, right, low-income folks. And for Freudenberger, the experience of burnout that he sort of identified amongst people who were volunteering in the free clinics was yes, a product of overwork, but also a product of other forms of structural dispossession and disenfranchisement combined with that overwork in the context of having no sort of um, recourse to social safety nets, like the family, like, you know, traditional medical environments, um, like the welfare system, et cetera. So, 
So that was a very, that's a very particular understanding of what burnout is. And it was only in the early 1980s that it became sort of generalized to just refer to people feeling really tired because they were working very long hours in an increasingly neoliberal economic situation. Um, and that's kind of how we have come to understand the term now. And I write a little bit about Anne Helen Peterson's work. Anne Helen Peterson is a journalist who wrote a book called Can't Even about burnout that sort of frames millennials as the burnout generation. Um, and I think that the genealogy of burnout complicates that picture a little bit um, because it sort of calls attention to the fact that burnout is specifically a product of intense intense social dispossession. And then that, that is even amongst millennials not experienced in continuous or similar ways, right? Um, it's very, very much, very, very much cross-cut by, by axes of privilege. So, so yeah, <laughs> I, I could go on probably all day about this history of burnout. Um, but that's part of why I wanted to, to sort of look at the roots of the term and then think about how it's, it's sort of specifically relevant for thinking about the forms of what Rupert Raj called voluntary gender labor um, that trans folks undertake because that experience of simultaneous, right, unremunerated or poorly remunerated labor in a context of structural dispossession without recourse to social safety nets, right, seems to describe a lot of the experience of, of trans folks that I know um, and a lot of my own experience. So that's, yeah, that's why burnout, I guess. Yeah, and the, the it seems like utter dependence of sort of medical practitioners on that free labor um, mm-hmm. in order for them to make a profit. Um, right. And not just medical practitioners. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely medical practitioners, but also, right, universities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, mm-hmm. also, right, like social work settings. I mean, it happens in, in many, many realms where, you know, for instance, trans folks come in to do trainings to make a Fortune 500 company sort of more superficially trans-inclusive, um, ultimately not not transforming the culture, but putting the trainers who do that work in a position of constantly having to, to handle the sort of unreflexive trans-antagonism of huge swaths of people in a way that leads ultimately to extreme burnout um, for the people who do that kind of work. Yeah, and so this... Uh, the final chapter is really turning towards how solidarity can be built through tarrying with negative affects. And one of the things you re- really put under pressure are modes of healing that people have sought out or, or built that tend towards a sort of like the term of white viscosity. And I cannot now remember the um, theorist who, who initially at- articulates that concept. Yeah, it was Arun Saldana. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And this. Well. So yeah. Will you tie? So. So you're both arguing for this tarrying with negative affects and and putting under question these forms of healing that that can reinforce a sort of white viscosity. So. So will you talk to us about um, the importance of tarrying with negative affects and how that can be a sort of resistance to white viscosity? Yeah. Yeah. That's a. It's a complicated chapter. Um, in part because I'm writing about sort of queer and trans take-ups of new age spirituality pretty specifically. And, and that's also what Arun Saldana um, is concerned with in, in his book, Psychedelic White, where he coins this term white viscosity. Um, he was looking specifically at the circulation of, of new age sort of discourse and practices in the context of rave communities in Goa, India, which were predominantly white and Western, right? Even though they took place in party spaces in in Goa, India. Um, and and of course that's not I'm not writing about raves, right? But, yeah. but although, is that in the next book? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'd love be, to see you write actually. about raves. Yeah. It okay. Be. Good. Okay. We will see. Okay. Um, but you know, I looked to sort of trans take-ups of, of new age spirituality that had circulated really in my, in my youth, right. In my teens and early twenties that I was very much aware of. And, 
and were some of my first, I don't know, it was like where I encountered first discourses on, on queer and trans spirituality and healing um, from the sort of cumulative impacts of, you know, all of the forms of, of violence and antagonism that trans folks are subject to. And after reading Saldana's work, I thought, you know, there's something about this trans take-up of New Age spirituality that is extremely white, and it doesn't seem coincidental, right? Or it doesn't seem accidental. And, and it was also linked to the set of discourses that emerged in the 80s and 90s um, that sort of positioned trans folks as these, like, harbingers of a new age of like matriarchal gender peace <laughs> i don't know you may be familiar with some of this um <laughs> but it was very much like a countercultural trans you know discourse that that i was exposed to recurrently when i was young and was also like interested in but but a little skeptical of too because i wasn't sure quite what was going on there um and i think what what i saw over the course of the last decade or so is a real sort of explosion of take up of different forms of healing practice or spiritual practice um some explicitly new age and some not quite explicitly new age amongst queer and trans communities and in many instances i thought okay well they're replicating the same kind of um troubling forms of of like exclusionary whiteness that inform some of these older versions that i'd already been critical of um and i found that troubling because on the one hand, I think, you know, thinking about healing and practicing healing is imperative, right? And is a collective project. But on the other hand, the the spaces that I look to where this was being intentionally framed as specifically queer and trans tended to be overwhelmingly white um, and produce what Aaron Saldana calls white viscosity, which is the, the sort of tendency of white bodies to stick together to one another. So it's not deliberately exclusionary, um, but but ends up being exclusionary by virtue of that viscosity. And a lot of our current rhetoric around like self-transformation and healing engages in that, that white viscosity. And it's not just trans people, it's not just queer people, right? I mean, if you look at like the popularity of something like Burning Man, you see it there too, um, or any of these other transformational festivals um, that have whole sort of countercultures that have sprung up around them. Um, yeah. So I'm not being necessarily super clear about the trajectory of that chapter, but in part it's because this is still like an open question for me. I'm really interested in queer and trans practices of healing and also interested in how they cannot reproduce those forms of racial exclusion, how they can actually operate in, in a kind of coalition or solidarity with other movements um, while still doing justice to the specificity of of certain kinds of trans experience. Yeah, and it really struck me that it, it was by not thinking that um, negative affects can just be cured, right? That it's like, oh, you have a really good time, um, you know, doing some activity and now you're cured because the, the situation of injustice endures, right? Like it may be imperative, like you may do things that are imperative for you, but that doesn't, um, change the situation of injustice that is intersectional, right? And does need to be um, navigated intersectionally. Um, and it seems like you're, yeah, like you just give us so much to work with on the grounds of negative affects on not having to fix them, even as they may need address to be survivable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good. Oh, good. I read your book well. Okay. Good. <laughs> well, so, yeah. So, absolutely. Um, okay. Well, so are raves next, or what are you working on next? <laughs> no. So actually, Mackenzie Bork has a book on raving coming out. Um, so I would, oh, nice. if you're interested in raves, I would direct Indeed. you there. Okay. Um, and yeah, what's next for me? I mean, I'm working on a bunch of small projects right now. I'm writing a response to America Sephora's book, uh, Viral Cultures. I'm just looking at my desk. I wanted to make sure I got the subtitle right. Activist Archiving in the Age of AIDS. Um, there's going to be a special dossier on that that book that's coming out probably next year. Um, I've been writing, I wrote 
a gallery text for this artist, Spence Messi, who is uh, a trans artist in Australia who does sort of large abstract glassworks. And I'm beginning a bigger project um, on questions of trans technicity and genealogies of trans technicity right now, but it's in its, its early phases. So I'm not entirely sure where that's going, but it's picking up some threads of work that um, I put out probably five or six years ago around biohacking um, and also writing back to contemporary trans antagonistic discourses that have a really sort of odd and very sort of staid understanding of, of human ontology, <laughs> right? Which I guess goes back to my longer preoccupation with process ontology. So I'm trying to think through that nexus um, in a way that sort of takes aim at the, the real like philosophical and political incoherences of contemporary forms of trans antagonism. That, yeah, that on the one hand sort of critique trans subjects for suffering from a kind of like false consciousness about the promises of technology, while at the same time forwarding uh, an understanding of biological sex difference that even the biologists understand is wrong. So, so yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. No, it sounds rich. Well, I look, I look forward to, to seeing what you do with that. And thank you so much for our conversation today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.